Welcome to the Great Loop Radio Podcast, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. I'm Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today, we are going to talk about looping on a jet ski or other PWC. And with us will be uh, one of our members who just recently completed the loop on a jet ski. So that's our topic today. Really excited to dive into that. Before we start, as always, I just want to take a moment to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes and Associates, Great Loop Yacht Sales, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners and our viewers to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. And with the business out of the way, I am really pleased to welcome Mike Straub to the show. Mike, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Kim. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, a pleasure. And um, you are pretty well known uh, on social media, at least, <laughs> for your feat of completing the Great Loop aboard a jet ski. Um, and we were just chatting kind of in the pre-interview. So there are some firsts involved in that. So go ahead and tell us uh, you are the first to do it in, in this way. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, I think I am because it's kind of hard to research this on the Internet. But I, I think I'm the first person to do the Great Loop on a personal watercraft uh, in one summer on just one ski mm -hmm. um, and do it solo without uh, without a chase crew or without any uh, official sponsors. Uh, a couple, 20 years ago, a couple of guys did it on skis, but um, they either had sponsors or their skis would break down and they actually did it on two skis. So if anybody knows differently, I'd love to love to give them credit. But uh, yeah, I think I'm the first to do that. Do it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And occasionally I hear from people who are planning to do it on a ski. And, you know, that often is part of their plan is to have at least two and have a chase vehicle that is carrying the other one so that if they do have a mechanical failure, They've got the second ready to go. And also, you know, sometimes that chase crew is in an RV um, and that solves some of the um, some of the logistical issues that we'll touch on today, such as where do you sleep when you're doing the loop on something like a jet ski? So we're going to dive all into that. Um, but first of all, tell us, you know, what got you interested in the great loop and why did you decide to do it now? Yeah, so why now is kind of a little bit of uh, why wait. Uh, mm -hmm. So the name of my boat, the the name of my book, the even the license plate, it's why wait. And so I'm just very passionate about getting out and doing it, uh, living your dreams while you can. Uh, I'm wired for adventure, and so I wanted to take on on the adventure. Um, would I love to do the loop someday in a boat? Well, sure. Uh, that's probably needs to be more in retirement so I can enjoy it a little bit better, at least for where I'm at and, and my stage. Um, I learned about the loop while doing some river runs on the Missouri River and then researching for the Mississippi River. And that's where I learned this is a great loop. What's that? And it's like, mm -hmm. well, you can do that. I, I didn't know. And so that's usually uh, the first reaction. Really? You can do that? <laughs> yes. Yes. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's how I learned about it. Yeah. So definitely understand um, the why doing it now. Um, and, and as Mike said, he's got a book out called Why Wait, um, which is just an, another way of asking that question. Um, why do it now? Why wait? And I, I love that um, that phrase and that that's the name of your book and your boat. 
Um, were you a jet skier before? So I was going to ask you, you know, okay, I get why now, but why on a jet ski? But it sounds like perhaps that was kind of a normal mode of transportation for you, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I, I bought my first ski in my early 20s, and I've had a ski pretty much the whole time since then. Uh, so I just, I'm very comfortable on a ski. I know its limits. And that's so important, right, for anybody traveling on the water to be comfortable in their own machine. Uh, and so I, I, I just, I felt really comfortable and knew its limits. And then I, yeah, I love those long distance runs. It's like, you know, motorcycle, right? Just kind of the parallel. And uh, I either going out on the Missouri River or uh, moved on to the Mississippi River. And I just really enjoyed the the, the adventure and the solitude of it. Yeah. Well, and I love that you described it as, you know, that's the machine you were comfortable on um, because so much of the way you did the Great Loop is different from the way most people do it, but so much is really the same. And that is, you know, one of the things that we preach is that you need to be comfortable and competent on whatever boat it is you choose. So I love that, you know, one of your reasons for using a jet ski is, is it's what you had, it's what you knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think makes it a safer and more enjoyable adventure for anybody if they're using a equipment <laughs> that they are familiar with, be it a brand new, you know, boat that they just bought for the great loop. We just encourage people to reach that level of comfort and, and competence managing it before they leave. So clearly you had done that with your ski. Um, you know, and the other thing that was the same as most loopers is you were out there doing the same route. Your stats are probably a little bit different other than the overall mileage that you covered because everyone does that, you know, with some choices of route, but more or less the same mileage or the same route. Um, Tell us, you know, give us some of your trip trip stats, things like how many miles a day, um, how many days did you travel, when did you start and finish? Go ahead, share some of those with us. Uh, Well, I started in Omaha and finished in Omaha. So that's a 600 mile run from Omaha to St. Louis uh, just to get on the loop. And so I call it the pigtail, (laughs) but, uh, but if we, so the trip itself lasted 101 days uh, over the summer. And uh, so if you chop off the pigtail, then we're down to 91 days uh, on the loop. And I had previously committed to two different vacations in the middle of the loop. So I actually took a break from the loop twice. Uh, One was for my 25th wedding anniversary. Can't, can't really let that. Important stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, another one was a a week long with my brothers on our 35th or 31st um, brother's trip, camping Mm -hmm. trip, adventure trip, whatever. Mm -hmm. So that left uh, 74 days to do the loop over the summer. Uh, I had 49 travel days. um, And so I was moving pretty good. And then I, I worked. I still am employed and I worked 19 days on the loop. Uh, I had five weather days, which is not too bad for a whole summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Three of those days were uh, in Mackinac Island, uh, which is not a bad place to be held up for (laughs) for weather days. Very (laughs) true. Waiting for uh, Lake Michigan to behave. But uh, and then just two other down days, uh, one mechanical and then just another down day. So I was moving. Uh, I was I was going. my average miles per day ended up being 117 miles per day. Uh, you know, I, I would cruise at 25 to 30. I, I'm, I really don't enjoy the 45, 55 mile an hour, you know, that some skis can do. And uh, that's not me. I would much rather get up on plane, be efficient, but um, take it a little bit slower and less wind noise, less wind burn, all that stuff. Uh, I averaged 19 mile an hour for engine hour. So I wasn't, wasn't moving all that fast per se. Um, 
my longest day was 230 miles. Uh, that was from uh, Demopolis on down to Fairhope. Uh, I did that <laughs> day. Yep. Um, and my my golf crossing was kind of different too. You know, most people uh, launch from Carabelle or Apalachicola, and you know whether it be the St. Mark's, which is a little bit further kind of up the coast and a little bit further north. And then from St. Mark's all the way down past Tarpon Springs, uh, I was 20 miles offshore uh, that whole time. So uh, uh, just some other quick stats. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the machine it has an 18-gallon fuel tank, and then I carried an extra 24-gallon, and that gave me a range between 200 to 275 miles, um, which is not bad for a ski. <laughs> mm -hmm, right. Uh, I... I averaged, and these are all statute miles, forgive me, <laughs> but uh, I averaged about uh, 5.8 miles to the gallon. Um, and so uh, I know a lot of boaters, uh, it's more gallons per hour. So for me, that was 3.3, mm -hmm. running at about 5,000 to 5,500 RPM. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, 356 engine hours total to, to get it done. Gotcha. So um, one of the things you mentioned was your golf crossing and you mentioned, and we had a little internet snag for a second there, but you mentioned going to St. Mark's. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that I've wondered about on doing it on a jet ski or other, you know, smaller craft. We've had some people who have paddled the loop. Um, you really don't have the depth issues <laughs> that you might have on a larger vessel. So I've kind of been curious how that impacts your choices, like on the Gulf crossing. Um, you can stay closer to shore where larger boats cannot. Um, so how did the fact that, you know, you, you draw very little impact that and the rest of your route choices? You know, a lot less than you think. Um, mm -hmm. so with ski, you're supposed to try to stay in at least three feet of water. Really? Okay. And, uh, just so that you don't um, pull in or, or suck in uh, through your impeller the, any sand or rocks or okay. anything like that. And sense. so, mm -hmm. and on top of that, you know, the Gulf with its uh, seaweed and being that close to shore and then any kind of shoaling, you know, running mm -hmm. at 30 mile an hour to hit an unexpected shoal, that, that would not feel good. So no, I generally followed Navionics. Uh, just like, and I set my depth even at five feet of, I, I wanted to be in very safe waters. And for the golf, that meant, yeah, riding way offshore. Yeah. Uh, could I have rode closer to shore? Probably. But uh, I, I really didn't want to risk anything like that. Uh, so I just chose chose to ride offshore quite a ways. Yeah, interesting. So thank you, because that is something I've wondered about. Yeah. <laughs> so now I can check that off my list of things I'm not sure about. Um, so I guess the other question that everybody thinks about when they hear of somebody doing the loop on a jet ski or other very small craft, um, you know, there's obviously some logistical challenges. So let's talk about what kind of gear did you carry with you? You only have so much space. Um, so what were the things that your ski was loaded up with that you carried with you every day? Yeah, yeah. I, the gear was really an important aspect to the trip. And and really, as far as overall logistical challenges, being from Omaha, I've, I've never skied in saltwater, or, mm -hmm. you know, navigating the ICW. So there was so much research that I did ahead of time to try to understand what gear to take. Uh, and one of the best tools, I used waterwayguide.com, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Great resource. On, 
on their their online explorer and i i traveled the entire loop using that waterway guide um to learn all of the different bodies of water that I would be in. I wrote down all their mile markers. It all went into a spreadsheet. And so I, through that spreadsheet, I, I got a list of uh, roughly how many miles it would be. And then I started pulling in all the locks, all of the low bridges, because even I had a few low bridges to worry about, all the phone numbers for the locks. I even started pulling in marine information. So in this spreadsheet, I would have a list of all of the not not all certainly, but just every 30 to 50 miles, a choice of marinas that I could stop mm -hmm. at for fuel. And did they have a hotel near the marina? Uh, right. so I did mm -hmm. research. From that, I was able, and then a lot of other research with uh, other uh, jet ski uh, Facebook groups, right? People that go out mm -hmm. and do some fishing offshore. Um, but the, the gear, um, so one of the most important things I had was uh, navigation. So I, the ski came with a seven inch um, Garmin chart plotter, a fish finder chart plotter, uh, which was wonderful having that. And then I also had a 10 inch Android tablet and that was strapped right front and center on my handlebars. And that was running Navionics. So I had two chart plotters plus my phone, which could have acted as another one. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was great having that. And then the, the tablet acted as, you know, I had my spreadsheet there so I could, you know, all my information handy and communication as well, uh, text messages, keeping up with social media, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, on my life vests, it had three pockets. Uh, and so I had a personal location beacon, a PLB. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I also had a... Um, a Garmin uh, InReach Mini. And so it's a little tiny uh, device. Uh, both were satellite-based for SOS. So if one of them failed, I had the other one to, hey, I need help. And that gave me a lot of confidence being 20 miles offshore. Right. Uh, I also had a uh, portable handheld uh, marine radio. Uh, and I kept that in my pocket and I had a cord running up to uh, a mic with a speaker on it next to my shoulder. Uh, and that was awesome keeping hands on the handlebar and quickly being able to to, to speak with the, the lock masters etc um i had two cell phones in case one accidentally fumbled and went into the into the water i had mm -hmm. a second one ready to go uh i had two cameras gopro and an insta 360 camera um i had three bilge pumps <laughs> on that wow. little uh, the ski has a built-in siphon pump that runs when the engine's going. I had a regular bilge pump installed that was either off of a float switch or uh, just constant run. So I had a switch that I could change that. And then I actually had a portable bilge pump, uh, like an 800 gallon per hour pump that uh, was 12 volt socket based. Mm -hmm. So I could use that either on my ski or some other, you know, if somebody needed help or whatever, I had that ready to go. Um, I had, uh, just a bunch of other different stuff on the ski. I, I built in a, a, a electrical box so that I could have a 12 volt socket and some USB sockets for powering my supplies or my, all my electronics. Uh, I even had like uh, nav lights installed and it's not legal for skis to be out there at night. I wasn't trying to do that, but if I rolled into fog or low lighting conditions, heavy clouds, then I could turn on some some highlights and people can see me. Yeah. Um, and 
that, that I love all that safety equipment that you had. I love the redundancy that you built in because again, those are the same things that we preach to the bigger boats is you know redundancy on your navigation, redundancy on your safety gear. Um, you know, I think people hear about doing this on a jet ski and get the impression that, you know, just kind of on a lark, <laughs> you hop on a jet ski and go around. You obviously put a lot of thought and a lot of planning into how to do this and to do it safely. Um, so, you know, kudos to you on that. I know you mentioned in the, uh, you mentioned some of the marinas you would check out if there was a hotel nearby. So it sounds like that was one of your logistics, but tell us kind of in general, what was, what was your plans as you set off of, you know, where you're going to sleep every night? Cause there's no sleeping quarters on a jet ski. <laughs> right. Right. Although some people are starting to try that, believe it or not, but really? uh, not me. Uh, <laughs> so I had a, uh, I did have a dry bag for camping supplies because between Omaha and, and really Paducah, there's just not a lot of options uh, for for camp marinas uh, other than, you know, Alton, um, Illinois, up north of, of St. Louis. Uh, so I had a camping bag and sent, you know, all the all those camping supplies. Um, but once I hit Paducah and on further south, then it was just too hot and it was too much to try to do a tent every night and keep up that kind of a go, go, go schedule. Um, so I would do marinas and hotels and, uh, and all that research ahead of time, I, I used Google maps and street view and satellite view to see which marinas had fixed docks versus floating docks, which might be friendlier. You know, the floating docks are way friendlier for a ski. Cause a lot sure. of times a ski will go right under, you know, a higher dock for the bigger mm -hmm. boats. Um, so a, a ton of research went into which marinas were possibilities to stay at. So yeah, uh, once I hit on down, it was uh, you know marinas and uh, and hotels or bed and breakfast. As as the trip went on, so many people started reaching out on Facebook and social media and stuff. Hey, I'm on the loop. Come stay with me. I've got mm -hmm. a dock. I've got a bed. I got some beer. Um, and so yeah. it was like it was a game changer. Uh, and so 19 hosts ended up reaching out and I stayed with them for like 30 some nights out yep. of the total trip. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a really interesting combination of, of hosts, hotels, and then, then the camping and mm -hmm. uh, something that a you know, big contrast between your, your, I'll call them your average looper is on a liveaboard, you know, you, you get to the marina and I've got an RV. I know what it's like, right? You're, you're there, you're at home. And uh, mm -hmm. for me, there were out of the 85 nights, it was 60 different times. I had to pack everything off the ski, lug 90 pounds of gear to wherever, no hotel or host, mm -hmm. unpack it all, recharge the electronics, pack the bags, take them back to the ski, load the ski, get all the electronics back out again. <laughs> it was, uh, it was a challenge. Yeah. That's definitely another level of, you know, trying to get ready for the day or wrap up the day when you have to literally take everything with you. Right. Um, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about kind of like the basic needs of sleep. Um, and we talked a little bit about the gear, but what did you wear most of the times? Um, you know, we had a, a looper, um, a bit older than you who actually started the loop on a ski from our spring rendezvous one year. So the first thing he was hitting was the chest peak. Um, and he really struggled with the wave conditions on the chest peak unexpectedly didn't really have the right protective gear. Like his feet were wet kind of all day long. Um, and that 
became a real issue and he had to stop pretty early into his adventure because of that. So how did you keep your skin protected and, and, you know, safe from the elements? Yeah, I, I read about that. Uh, mm-hmm. and I was concerned about that. Um, but luckily the, the water issue on the feet, um, I was able to keep them kind of out of the footwells and propped up and, and could dry them off. But, uh, most of the time I wore, uh, just swim trunks and, uh, usually like a long sleeve rash guard, uh, I did have to start wearing even long pant rash guards just to keep the sun off me. I, I really wanted to avoid sunburns. I, I can burn kind of easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would wear that. And then, of course, once I got up to, what was it, like uh, Huron or Lake Erie, uh, I finally got the uh, wetsuit on uh, and wore a wetsuit for the colder waters. Yeah. And then, you know, another basic need, where and what did you eat and drink? Did you carry a lot with you or did you rely on shoreside facilities to be able to manage those? Yes, uh, this was hard because a lot of time I wanted to be on the water early and off the water early. And so if I was at a hotel, a lot of times I was leaving the hotel before their breakfast buffet or whatever got rolling. So that meant a very simple bagel or, you know, something relatively small for breakfast. And then I did not want to stop for lunch and then continue. I wanted to get off the water. So I would just have light snacks throughout the day uh, and not really stop at a marina or anything, you know, for to eat. So when I finally did get, get off the water, I was, I was hungry. I, yeah. A lot of times I was lightheaded. I was hungry. Uh, mm-hmm. The nice thing is I could eat whatever I wanted. I was going to burn it off. Yeah. So let's take a quick break and play a message from a sponsor. Um, When we come back, I want to shift to, uh, you mentioned that you were still working, which, uh, you know, is is probably something that will surprise a lot of people because that is not something that sounds like it goes very well. You know, I I think I'm struggling to work aboard. (laughs) Not really, but, you know, working aboard (laughs) when you're in an enclosed cabin um, all day long with your Starlink is one thing, but, you know, trying to work while doing the loop on a jet ski is kind of next level. So let's take our break. And when we come back, we'll jump into that a little bit. We'll be back in a moment. Winter Harbor Marina is located on the Oneida River, 1.5 miles west of Oneida Lake in Brewerton, New York, just minutes from Syracuse International Airport. Winter Harbor offers the lowest diesel fuel and gas prices from New York City to Canada. If you find a lower posted documented price, they will match it. Their amenities include complimentary courtesy vehicle, 24-hour pay-at-the-pump fueling, dockside water and cable TV, pristine bathrooms and showers, and emergency haul-out service. For more information, call 315-676-9276 or visit www.winterharborllc.com. Winter Harbor is a proud commander sponsor of AGLCA. Prop Talk is an Annapolis-based company founded in the summer of 2005 by active Chesapeake Bay boaters. The company produces Prop Talk Magazine, a monthly newsprint magazine focused on Chesapeake Bay power boating and the lifestyle surrounding boating on the bay. Every issue of Prop Talk is distributed at more than 850 carefully chosen and closely monitored locations throughout the Mid-Atlantic. Prop Talk's coverage goes deep rather than wide, and the magazine celebrates the people, places, boats, personalities, and events that make the Chesapeake one of the world's premier boating grounds. Thanks for reading and supporting the Chesapeake Bay's Boating Magazine. 
We're back on the Great Loop Radio podcast. My guest today is Mike Straub. He recently finished the Great Loop aboard a jet ski. Um, and as we're learning in our discussion, kind of a unique choice in vessels and some unique challenges that come with that. But overall, he had a very similar experience to what everybody else has. He covered those same waters. Um, and one of the things that I think people think about when you when you consider doing the loop on a smaller craft like a jet ski is the locks. Um, so like everyone else, you probably did, you know, close to a hundred locks, if not more, um, any challenges to locking through on a jet ski? Did any of the, the lock masters and some of the bigger commercial locks give you a problem with that? Uh, you know, actually traversing through the locks was generally pretty easy. Um, mm -hmm. and for the most part, I did not have any trouble with the lock masters. Um, you know, the, the sides of the walls and how filthy they are, they're just covered with algae. Uh, that was not comfortable, right? Being around mm -hmm. that, being so close to it. Um, some of the lock masters would let me just float in the center, which mm -hmm. was awesome uh, because that was, the, the, the ski's not going to tilt up and down from the, the eddies and currents. It, it's it's fine. Uh, it's when you're having to hold on to the side and try to keep the ski just a few inches away from the side. Uh, that's just kind of more of a pain than anything. Uh, as far as the locks, it was the lock weights. That's where the trouble was. Um, I got caught up in some monster four hour, five hour lock weights. And, um, you know, I get it. Commercial traffic first. It, absolutely. Right. I'm just like any other boat that way. Uh, we're got to let those go through first. So I would be sitting in on my ski with a golf umbrella for shade. Um, <laughs> at 95 degree heat for four hours, just waiting. In fact, one time it, it was so hot. I went to reach for my peanut butter, uh, that was in this gear, just snack and I could drink <laughs> the peanut butter out of the jar. Wow. It was so, so hot. Yeah. But, uh, so for the most part, the locks were fine. Yeah. Which route option did you take in the Great Lakes? Did you go into Canada or did you stay on the U.S. side? Yeah, I chose to stay on the U.S. side. So mm -hmm. I took the Erie Canal all the way over uh, to mm -hmm. uh, to Lake Erie and then Huron and Michigan. So uh, yeah. I'd love to get up into Canada. I've heard Georgian Bay is just beautiful. Uh, uh, so maybe next time. Next time around, it's a good reason to go again. <laughs> yeah. So we mentioned, uh, and you mentioned that you still work. You're not retired yet. And that you worked, I think you said 19 days on the loop. Um, so how did that work with looping on a jet ski? Cause I doubt you're pulling out a laptop or something while you're underway. So did you just take complete days off of the loop to be on the clock yeah. for work? Yeah, I'm so fortunate. Uh, I've been at uh, my employer team software for 29 years. And so they were pretty understanding, I guess, of, of what I was trying to do. Um, when I, uh, it's kind of a funny story, just trying to tell your employer, Hey, I'm going to be gone for three months here. I, I had worked with uh, the president. I'd worked with her for 20 some odd years. And I walk into her office and she's like, oh, God, what are you doing now? You know, <laughs> and she, she kind of mm -hmm. just knew me too well. And I said, well, I think I'm going to ride my jet ski 7,000 miles. You're crazy. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. But uh, she's like, yep, uh, you know what? We've got gals that take three months off all the time. And you're willing to stay at least touch base every now and then. So go for it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I had two laptops with me, redundancy. And I would double up in hotels or hosts. And I would spend a day uh, resting my body, which mm -hmm. that part was great. Uh, and then remote working from, from the hotel or from a host house. 
So how, you know, you mentioned you could eat whatever you want um, and you mentioned resting your body. So how physically demanding is this? I think most of us have ridden jet skis, you know, on vacation where we rented one for an hour. Um, this is obviously something completely different. So how physically uh, in shape do you need to be to take on the Great Loop on a jet ski? I should have worked out more before I started. <laughs> um, I had the rivers uh, to get my body used to being on a ski every day. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that was great. I had a couple of weeks of easier riding. Uh, the the Gulf and the Atlantic, uh, you know, here in Nebraska, and you know, we got waves from the wind, but we don't have swells. And so right. getting out there on the swells and then just the whole you know, uh, you know, following sea versus a head sea and, uh, even just a little two foot head sea on that ski, it just, it's up and down, up and down. It's just, mm -hmm. you can barely make plane sometimes, uh, you're lucky sometimes for 15 miles an hour, you know, just, yeah. it, or you run the risk of it crashing down and jarring hits. And, uh, that, you know, that was probably the worst of it. It's not so much if the ski came up into you. It was when the ski dropped away from you and, and the whole ski and your handlebars and it's just a jar. I can, mm -hmm. <laughs> I can tell. Um, yeah, just, oh, painful. So towards the end of the trip uh, and holding on to the handlebars all the time, right? And that just, um, I had, I had a form of uh, cruise control or a speed limiter where I could okay. the strap mm -hmm. and pin the throttle and it would hold a constant speed. Uh, I did have that going for me. And so I could, I could let go and actually massage my wrist and, and things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. But towards the end of the trip, Lake Michigan, and uh, it was getting to the point where I was starting to kind of go numb a little bit on the arm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So pretty physically punishing. Yes. Um, it sounds yes. like. So we mentioned that you have a new book out about your experience. It's called Why Wait with a Y, um, why, the letter yeah. Y, wait. Um, and we wish you the best of luck with the book. Tell us, you know, when did you decide to write a book? Did you start the loop on a jet ski thinking this will make a great story? Or did you realize somewhere along the way or even after that you really had a story to tell? Yeah, uh, I did not know I was going to write a book. It was I was on the loop and I was just chatting with somebody and they were like, man, I, I can't wait to read your book. And I'm like, <laughs> what book? And they're like, wait, you're going to write a book. <laughs> I mean, it was just a foregone conclusion. I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so then I got home and after the loop and my wife, she's a bit of a bookworm. And so mm -hmm. she she encouraged me. She even for Christmas, she bought me a book kind of like one of those uh, how to write a book for dummies. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, after thinking about it and after uh, uh, finally in April, that's when I started uh, writing the book. And I felt like, you know, the loop and doing it on the ski is one thing, but I really felt like why wait? And that message, that's everybody, right? Mm -hmm. It's um, everybody can appreciate how life just can pass you by a little too quickly. And there's, so, I, I read so many on the Facebook group of mm -hmm. uh, just people, you know, time and again, where it's one thing or another, and it's not that they can control it, but just life, you know, happens. And so I feel it's a great story, a reminder for people to get out there and live their passions and live their dreams. 
Yeah. No, I've seen far too many people who wait for that perfect time to do the loop and it never comes. It's it's kind of like that old saying, like waiting for the perfect time to have kids. There is no perfect time. Right. I think that, you know, that can be said about the loop too. And, and I mentioned, you know, somebody who attempted it starting from our spring rendezvous, um, who was well into his seventies. And I, as we talked about, it's, it's a physically demanding task. And I think, you know, he probably could have done it. I think maybe he just waited a little bit too long. So I, I love the why wait idea. Um, and again, that's one of those things that I think really translates from your experience doing it on a ski to anyone's experience of doing the Great Loop. Um, so how, you know, obviously you had some expectations when you started this. How did the actual reality of doing the Great Loop on a ski differ from what your expectations were? Yeah, so talked a little bit about the swells. Those were a little bit of a new experience, at least for me, on the inland waters. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, but the one of the, as far as the experience, the, one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I prepared myself for people in the boating community to maybe look down on me. Uh, and I, I get it right. I'm on this little toy ski on, in a big boat world. And, uh, there's a certain portion of the boating community that doesn't really appreciate these jet skis, jumping wakes and, you know, being so unpredictable and getting in the way and all those things. And I get it. There's a stereotype out there and, Unfortunately, that's probably been earned, um, but there was so much support. I, I'm getting goosebumps. Uh, the mm, amount of, <laughs> of that, the people that reached out, and it did not matter. People were on five and $10 million yachts and people were on, you know, smaller boats and everybody reached out and, and supported me. And it was amazing to come up onto these uh, boats and, they kind of knew the story. The story was getting around. And so as I would pull up or pass a boat, there'd be the captains in their, you know, their uh, homes and they'd be cheering me on and waving <laughs> me on and rooting for me. And so um, I was just, that was such a pleasant surprise uh, and to, to receive that much support uh, from everybody. Uh, there were a couple of different rafting parties that I attended uh, local raft ups, right? Hundreds of boats right. all just enjoying mm -hmm. the day. And uh, in both of those, I would, I, when I pulled up, there was all kinds of hooping and hollering and fun. Felling, you know, they were yelling out, hey, why wait? Come over here. Why wait? Why wait? <laughs> and it was like, keep on yelling that. You're getting the word out. Mission accomplished. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I love that you shared that because, um, you know, loopers as a whole, are some of the most kind and giving and generous and enthusiastic and supportive people I have ever met as a group of people. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes on social media, um, any group can get a bad rap, but I think, you know, probably you probably did see some resistance on social media and generally those aren't loopers. Loopers are pretty supportive of each other, regardless of the boat. As you said, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, the loop's been called the great equalizer. It doesn't matter if you're on a rowboat or a $5 million yacht you're all out there with the same goal and it's generally a pretty supportive community. So I'm super glad that you found that to be the case. Um, and I got goosebumps when you were talking about that too. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Um, last question, would you loop again? I think you mentioned in the beginning, maybe when you retire, but you know, if you were to loop again, would you do it differently? Would it be a different boat? Would it be a different adventure? Right. Right. Uh, that's such a tricky question. What would I do it? Would you do it again? 
And it's like, would you do it the first time again, knowing what you know now? And absolutely. Uh, I just, I've described the trip as it was my Mount Everest, right? A mm -hmm. big physical, yeah. mental, emotional kind of a challenge. What, so absolutely. I'm so glad I did it. An amazing experience. Now, would I do it again? on a on a ski and my first reaction when I would complete it was no way it was such an amazing adventure that any any trying to live up to that would be so hard to do mm -hmm. um but it's been a year or a little more and uh I'm kind of an adventure junkie so I don't know I'm I, I'm playing with the idea I might do more inland rivers um uh, mm -hmm. there's a lot of choices there and of course, in the future to, to do it on a boat, uh, you know, maybe uh, a few years down the road. But I, I know one thing I, I can't wait too long because why wait's calling me. Yeah, there you go. Mike Straub, thank you for sharing your story. Um, for those of you interested in the Why Wait book, um, you can find it on the greatloop.org website. If you go to, um, there's a link in our shop menu um, for books and swag and Great Loop stuff. From there, we just link to the book. Um, you know, you're not purchasing that from AGLCA. So Mike, is there a, you know, a, in addition to linking through on our site is what's the easiest way for people to find your book? Yeah, there is a paperback that's available out on Amazon and mm -hmm. uh, we can provide some links to that. And if I also have a color hardcover uh, and that's, you know, quite a bit nicer book and I can autograph that uh, and I'm selling that through Etsy uh, website. So, and, and hopefully we can provide some links for that. Absolutely. We can put those in the comments, um, both on the audio podcast version and on the YouTube version. So we'll make sure we get those out. Uh, Mike, again, thanks for sharing this really interesting story. And thank you for the message of why wait, because I think that's super important. Thank you, Kim. And thanks to everyone who's watched or listened today. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Great Loop Radio podcast. Until then, safe cruising. <laughs>